the aftermath is really hard. But when people say that people who commit suicide are selfish because they're not thinking about the other people, I don't agree with that. I think it's selfish to expect somebody who's in so much pain to live Mm -hmm. with that pain. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, aren't very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. I'm going to keep trying. We've been going strong since July of 2020. And of course, I want to thank all of our attempt survivors who have joined me here on the podcast to talk so openly and candidly and bravely. And and to everybody who listens week in and week out, or maybe this is your first time, a huge thanks. If you're a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. And keep in mind, we are talking about suicide, so this may not be a good fit for everybody. Please take that into account before you listen, but I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Blake. Blake lives in Ontario, Canada, and they are a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Blake, thanks so much for joining me. Remember how you found the podcast? I like I deal with mental illness and I was looking for like podcasts that talked about mental health like more real i'm really into this podcast about like domestic violence and like people who escape domestic violence and they tell their stories it's called oh it was called it's called something was wrong so after listening to that because i've i've dealt with like some domestic violence in my life so mm-hmm. i was been listening to that and i was like i really want to listen to something that's like more real about suicide but like still is like positive stories of like surviving but also is like more real like not just like I was suicidal and now I'm better and like everything's great because that's not really realistic I get that that's some people's story but that's not my story and it's not realistic for me so I think I just searched the word suicide on Spotify (laughs) your podcast came up and there were a couple other that came up that I didn't really check out Blake don't go to any others the only podcast you should listen to is this one no I really I really like that it is like real accounts but it's not super focused on like the suicide aspect it's like what happened before and what happened after and like what's kind of changed a bit I should listen to the evolution of the episodes I wonder if I've moved in a direction without be realizing it right a little bit more this I don't think so it's always just been like hey what's what happened but mm-hmm. interesting to hear different people's perspectives on it I've had some people reach out and say nah my story's too like things have worked out really well for me I don't think I'm a good fit I'm like sure you are I don't think you're not a good fit because things are working out but I wonder do, do I you know lean towards the dark or the muck or the yuck. I'm like, I don't know. I just think it's a lot of people stuff went through some stuff. When I read that, like I could like submit my story. I was yeah. like, oh, I actually want to do that because I've always wanted to share my story, 
but like a lot of the people in my life who like talk about their mental health they're in like very good places you know they had like a few suicide attempts but they're in like a really good place and they've been in therapy and I'm like I've been in therapy for like 10 years, but I am not in that good place. And like things are not rainbows and butterflies in my life yet. What is up with the rainbows and butterflies? They're always like the positive. I'm sure that there are some depressed butterflies. Yeah, there should be. Perfect segue. I mean, you just said you you submitted your story uh, and you wanted to talk about it. So, hey, let's talk about it. Now, this challenge here is, of course, we don't have 10 hours together and we don't want to hear every kernel of your life. So we have to figure out what to talk about. Do you know where it starts? Yeah. So I did think about this. So my first suicide attempt was in grade nine. I'm 24 now. So that was I was like 13 or 14. New Year's Eve. And my like whole thinking was I don't have to go into the new year and suffer for like a whole other year if I do it this day. Looking back, I'm like, I mean, I get it because I feel that way sometimes still. But that's like a really like I feel like going on a holiday is just really shitty for your family because every time that they celebrate that holiday, they think of you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like an extra kick. So when I've thought about it these days, you know, I try to plan it for a day that's not going to matter. It's not going to affect like a birthday or a holiday. Right. So random day. Like, I'll give an example. So this year or last year, like 2021, I had picked December 3rd, which was three weeks after my mom's birthday and about roughly three weeks before Christmas and my birthday. Very strategic. I was like at a point where I was like, I don't want to live into the new year, but I'm getting too close to the end of the year. So I, like, there's not a lot of days that I can pick. So I picked right. that day. I did not do it on that day. I had a, an attempt at the very beginning of November. First was when you were 13. Now you're 24. And do we have some in between? We do have some in between. So I have, there's like suicide attempts where I was like specifically like this is an attempt. I'm an addict. Substance use played a big part in my role or in my life. Mm -hmm. I have about eight months clean now. I went to rehab during the summer. Mm -hmm. I started using drugs in 2018. Uh, I used pretty much throughout 2018 and then in 2019 got clean, used a whole laundry list of different things, but my right. main drug of choice was opiates and then meth. Right. You know, sometime around that point, eventually I was so suicidal when I was using that I would take like an overdose of pills every day to get high. Mm-hmm. And the way that I thought about it was if I take all these small overdoses, eventually like it'll lead like eventually it should kill me and that will just be like considered a big overdose was how I saw it. Does that make sense? Uh, I think so. And it also just sort of makes me think about how we classify certain deaths. And when we say it's an overdose, and I'm not sure if it really matters, but it kind of does. Was it a suicide? That's what I want people to think about because I'm sure I'm not the only one who does that. If you look at it in like in the moment, it just looks like a small overdose. Right. It just looks like I was using too much at that time to get high. But really, I was taking it because I was like, if I take a small overdose today and tomorrow and the next day, eventually this should build up in my body enough that it will cause me to fully overdose and die. Does it work that way? It can. Yeah. The things that I was using had Tylenol in it Uh and Tylenol like will build up. That was like what I, well, that was like the thinking I had. And when I told my doctor about it, he was like, yeah, you definitely shouldn't do that. And I was like, okay, sure. No problem. But I was like, okay, well, in my mind, this will work. There's nothing impulsive about that. No, no. It was very very intentional. I do not want to be 
alive on earth any more period of time that didn't last. That was more than a day or two. Yeah. A lot of my attempts haven't been impulsive. They've been very meticulously planned. I've had some impulsive ones, you know, so my second attempt was also in grade nine. It was May 7th. I remember days of some of them and I don't remember the days of others because they don't stick out. But the first two did. I don't think I really wanted to die, but I wanted to inflict pain. And so I took an overdose before school. And then I went to school because I couldn't be home and have my parents found out I took an overdose. So instead I went to class and obviously felt really sick and eventually told a friend who was like, what the fuck? And took me to guidance. I wouldn't tell guidance. So she had to tell guidance and they basically were like, okay, we're going to call your parents. And then instead of just sending me to the hospital, my dad was like, I'm going to come get you from school. He works downtown. I live, I live in like Midtown. So he came all the way from downtown to Midtown, got me. And then we cabbed back downtown to the hospital. That didn't make a lot of sense to me at the time, but I think he just didn't want to pay an ambulance bill. Which does make sense to me and my parents. One of the big things that have has played a role in like me, my mental health has been my gender identity and sexuality. I identify as non-binary. I use they them pronouns now. And for a really long time, I didn't know that. Like I hadn't recognized that. And so I was just so miserable that suicide seemed like the only way out. And like that compounded with like all of my mental illness issues was just like, Yep, this seems like the best way. So when you're 13, 14 years old, you tried a couple of times, unaware of your gender challenges. I apologize for not using the right. It's like an old white dude. Doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. So I say all sorts of things that aren't good. But I try. I'm trying to be aware. I know. Yeah. And so you tried a couple of times when you're 13 years old and you had, you have mentioned and you, a, couple, a few times just in the short time we've been talking mental illness. Have you been diagnosed then or and or now? What, what was what mm-hmm. did you get diagnosed so with? In high school, I was diagnosed with just depression, general yeah. anxiety disorder and an eating disorder. I had anorexia at the time. Over the years, my diagnoses have changed. Obviously, that was like it was like 12 years ago or something, mm-hmm. 11 years. So over that time. I've been diagnosed with like major depressive disorder now uh, with psychotic features. Still have the anxiety. I mean, they're investigating bipolar. I've been given the borderline diagnosis, which is like. That's a popular one these days. It's like, if we're not sure what it is, you're borderline probably. That's probably what we're doing here. I was diagnosed in like a way that at the time made sense to me because I was just trying to understand what was going on. And so I was like, I really, really like I'd been told for years that I had traits of borderline, which is how Mm. they like start putting it on your file. And then when like, they think that you have all the traits, they'll diagnose you with it, even though you don't need all the traits to have the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. But I was inpatient after a suicide attempt back in 2018. I was talking to the psychiatrist on the unit and I was like, we've gone through this diagnosis before, but like, I think I match it. 
And he was like, oh, well, we'll just go through all the traits and you name a situation that matches this trait. If you match all the traits, then obviously you have the diagnosis. Does that sound like an ethical way to diagnose a disorder? Because I think that anybody could come up with a situation that goes with a trait. Diagnose me. I don't agree. Like now thinking back, I'm trying to fight the diagnosis because I don't agree with it. A lot of my team doesn't think that that's like an actual diagnosis. They think bipolar 2 fits a lot better but we're just not not sure but they're treating it as bipolar now and it's been working so makes me think that's actually what it is and it's not borderline but in toronto like in canada if you have borderline on your file which i think is the same in a lot of other places it stigmatizes all the care that you get for me so all of my care really my psychiatrist and my social worker through one hospital because of this if I go to another emergency room they will tell me to just go to the emergency room that my doctor is at which is hard because if I go there first my doctor has a note on my file saying I can't get admitted unless they talk to him so if I go on like a weekend and he's not there because he's not working I have to wait like four days in emergency just to maybe get admitted also if you have borderline they just like they'll be like oh, you don't do well admitted or being admitted is a really bad thing for you. So we're just going to send you home with your outpatient team. Like that's kind of like their the way that they see it because there's all this like research that if you're borderline, like you don't do well inpatient, that like it's a bad environment for you because like borderlines quote unquote, like rely on like emergency rooms and hospitals to stay safe, which I think is really just you get diagnosed with it and then you're expected to just cope. Mm -hmm. And the best treatment for borderline is DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy. It is a very important therapy tactic. I've done a lot of DBT. If you put all of my DBT sessions together, it comes out to like two years of DBT. It's just like, it's just to get you through the crisis moments. That's really what DBT does. Mm-hmm. Like it's to help you cope through crisis. The idea is that if you use your DBT skills, that it will like lessen the acuity of your crisis until you can like cope through it until it like diminishes to an amount that you can like cope with basically. That is not how it works for me. It doesn't work. DBT skills are like for acute crisis, acute meaning maybe like max an hour that you're in crisis. I am typically in crisis for like two days. Maybe the acute, acute issues are like a couple hours here and there, but they like, they continue to come back. And so when I use my DBT skills, I just get really angry that they're not working. And then that makes the crisis worse because I'm in more distress that my skills aren't working. So I don't agree with the borderline diagnosis. I think it's just an easy diagnosis to throw out there these days. It's also, it's been in the UK, it's been being renamed to emotionally unstable personality disorder, which I'm like, oh, that's really nice to just call people with borderline emotionally unstable because I think that really anybody with mental illness could be emotionally unstable, but- They don't know what to do with that. They don't know what to do with that one. No. They just don't know. Don't agree with that name at all. Not a good name. 13 years old. And then so take us through not every day of your life, of course, but from like 13 to 24. Like it sounds as if it has been, you'll tell me if I'm wrong, of course, pretty rocky. Yeah. Grade nine, I went to a new school after going to the same school from grade one to eight. Okay. Um, I grew up going to an all girls private school from grade one to eight. That was 
really hard. Uh, I started self-harming in grade eight and I also developed my eating disorder. There was a staff at that school who knew about it and just didn't tell my parents until my parents found out on their own. I think that if my parents had found out early on about my self-harm, that maybe it wouldn't have progressed to the level of depression and like suicidal thoughts that I had. But that is what happened. So in grade 10, I switched schools because I went to like from private school to like a really, really big public school. And that just was a really bad idea. I had a lot, I had some good friends, but I was also in a really bad place. So uh, I got into like an eating disorder treatment outpatient program in grade 10. And that's why I went to an alternative private school so that I could miss school to go to treatment. Um, And at this point, I had some outpatient mental health care because of my suicide attempts and stuff. And I had been inpatient like once basically. Grade 10 was pretty relaxed. And then grade 11, I switched schools again. And I went back to a private school, but a bit a smaller one and a co-ed one, which was a lot better. Still didn't know about my gender identity, but I knew that I wasn't straight. And that kind of helped because I was able to like become friends with other people who weren't straight. Did a lot of like soul searching in grade 11 and 12, but I ended up relapsing after being like in eating disorder outpatient treatment in grade 10. And finishing it in grade 11, I ended up relapsing like really quickly after. Um, And in grade 12, I was still at that private school, but I had to leave halfway through the year to go to a day program. Throughout that time, I think I had two other attempts in grade, like in high school. I don't remember the years that they happened, but they weren't serious enough to like go to the hospital. They were just like, oh, I overdosed and I woke up in the morning and I was upset about it, but I didn't tell anybody. I've had a lot of those, but it is what it is. I went to university right out of high school. I went to study child and youth care. Mm -hmm. It did not pan out. I lasted a year and a half. Uh, After I finished that day program for my eating disorder, I was good for probably like four months and then I relapsed again. And when I went to university, sorry to back up, I I finished grade 12 and right before I graduated, I was sexually assaulted. I did not have a memory of that assault for like five years after. But I think it played a really big role in my mental health in the next year mm-hmm. because I was just like trying to cope with the trauma of it. Like I knew that it had happened, but I didn't recognize the event as an assault. The person it was with and like how it happened just felt like really normal to me. Like I never said no and I ne- like I didn't want it, but I was like, I never because I never said no. And because I like, you know, we had been like hooking up regularly. I thought like it was normal. So it didn't count my mind. So I've done a lot to work through that assault now. And unfortunately, I've been assaulted other times. But that probably played a really big role in what happened after high school. I had like started drinking in grade 12. And going into first year, I basically was drinking all the time. I had a friend who lived on campus. And because of that, I could just drink at her dorm. I did make it through first year. Don't know how. I was severely anorexic that whole year, leading to the point where I thought I was going to have to go inpatient again, like which I'd never been. But I thought I was going to have to go to treatment and I would end up inpatient. Mm -hmm. I ended up pulling it together for a while, but I made it through first year. That was 2016, like 2015 to 2016. I then started second year and I made it through half the year before I dropped out. My mental health was so bad. I had had, um, I ended up overdosing on caffeine pills in first year, which are like really dangerous to take generally. But I took the equivalent of what would be like 80 cups of coffee uh, in one taking. 
Mm. And the only reason that I know that is because I told a friend that I had taken a bunch of caffeine pills and she was like, that mixed with your eating disorder is such a bad and dangerous idea. So she sent the police to my house mm-hmm. and my parents were sleeping, but I was sleeping, was pretending to sleep because I was so awake. And so they showed up and my parents went to the door and I got called down and they were like, we heard that you took a bunch of caffeine pills. And I was like, oh yeah, like it's okay. And they were like, well, how many did you take? And I don't remember the amount, but when I told them, they were like that based on the packaging, like that is like that amount of coffee. And I was like, oh, okay. And they were like, you need to go to the hospital. And I was like, oh no, no, no. Like I have a psych exam tomorrow morning. Like I can't miss that. And they were like, okay, well you're of age. So it's up to you. And I was like, I'm good. And then obviously Mm. failed that exam because wasn't going to sleep. But just like that is like a very distinct like way to paint a picture of what that whole year was like. Because it was just me like using alcohol and caffeine pills and diuretics, like diuretics and laxatives basically all the time and just Mm. being really unhealthy. Like I was overdosing on laxatives. I was overdosing on caffeine pills, not as suicide attempts, but my eating disorder in a way was just another way of committing suicide to me. The more that I engaged in it, I was like, well, this will kill me if a suicide attempt doesn't. And like, if this doesn't kill me, then this will. Like, that was how like everything that I did played out. Mm -hmm, Basically, mm -hmm. That summer, 2017, I went to rehab for the first time for my eating disorder. I did three months. It ended with a suicide attempt. I've been basically how this program works is you can go in, but like if you have other issues, you can't engage in them. So I wasn't allowed to self-harm. I couldn't like be suicidal. I would tell them I was suicidal and they'd be like, okay, well just, you know, don't do anything because we can't deal with it. And I'd be like, okay, cool. So basically leading up to that, I had been suicidal for like a week and I told them and they were like, okay, we'll just monitor it. And I was like, okay. And then I was on like a contract. So I'd already self-harmed on the unit. And so because of that, I had had to sign a contract basically stating that I wouldn't engage in any like suicidal or self-harm behaviors. And if I did, I would get kicked out. I made my pass plans for the weekend. I was supposed to go home, but because I was suicidal, we decided that I would stay on the unit for the weekend, but I would still go out on day passes. The day came and I like told a nurse and I was like, I'm really suicidal. Like, I don't think I should go out. Like I have this like plan in my head, you know, and something that was really normal for me during my addiction. I was an alcoholic before I started using drugs. Um, So basically like when I was in treatment, I was still using alcohol. Like I had stopped, but like that's when I realized I was an alcoholic. And so I was like, I really shouldn't go to like, I really shouldn't go on my path because a behavior that I used as like a coping behavior to feeling suicidal is I would just go and browse pharmacies. I would I would go and browse and it didn't mean that I was going to buy something and overdose, but just like the idea, it was like comforting knowing that I could buy something at any time that I knew what was in the pharmacy so that if I panicked, I could go and get it really quickly. A really normal behavior for me. And it's, it's continued for years. Like even after I stopped using, like that is something that I do just to like be comforted by Mm -hmm. choose to do. So I told them and the reaction I got from the nurse was I could decide not to go on my pass, but I could potentially face a penalty for that because I wasn't following the program. That's a penalty. Like basically I was at the point where they were like, if you don't engage in treatment, you'll get sent home. And so I was like, oh, so I overdose and I get sent home or I don't go my pass and I could potentially get sent home. So I'll just go my pass. 
obviously if I go on my pass and I overdose and then they tell me that like I can be like well you told me I'd get kicked out if I didn't go so it's your fault like was my thinking and that they would let me say uh, I don't know why I thought that so I went on my pass things were okay I called the unit to check in and then I went to the pharmacy and I ended up buying pills and I was like I don't have to take them but like just in case you know just in case Everything in my life, like around overdoses, has always just been like a, well, I'll have them just in case, you know. I don't sure. need to use them, but just in case, I'll I'll have them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That usually always ends up badly, but I always think it'll work. I ended up overdosing, and then I went back to the unit because my pass was over, and I checked in, and I was like, yeah, I'm just like not really feeling well. I'm gonna go lie down. I don't really remember what happened, but they came to my room because they didn't believe that I was just not feeling well. And they, I ended up telling them that I had taken an overdose and then they like the nurses on the weekend unit, like freaked out. And they were like, we're going to form you. And like, you're going to go to the hospital. And then like, you're probably just going to get kicked out. And I was like, okay, cool. Yep. Solid. And that is exactly what happened. Mm. Got kicked out, went home. Things with my parents had been breaking down for a pretty long time. I explained in our emails that like why I had to cancel the first recording was because I had gone to shelter, which is I'm in a hotel room right now, which is part of the shelter. Because of COVID, everything is at half capacity. Shelters, rooms that have two people in it can only have one. And so a lot of shelters have hotel floors that have like hotel rooms for clients at their shelter. So that's where I'm staying right now. So in 2018, right after treatment, I got out November. I ended up in shelter in January. Things were just like breaking down at home. And when I had returned home, I had started using substances. My siblings both have ADHD and they were away at university. And I was like, they probably have meds in their room. Easy way to get high or something. So that's what I started using. That pretty quickly led to addiction. I was, I was always told as a kid that I had an addictive personality and I didn't really believe that. Mm-hmm. I 100% believe that now, but I really didn't believe that at the time. I think that really anybody can have an addictive personality, but I think that there are like, you know, like if you have done things throughout your life that have become addictive, then it's easier. Like if I look back at my childhood, I was always a nail biter and that was a really hard habit to break. You know, I... Mm. I I built that habit and I used to eat my hair. That was a habit that I had. Uh, My eating disorder was like an addiction. Then the drinking was an addiction. You know, it all, they all were like small addictions. My self-harm was addiction. Like it always small addictions. And so when I look back at that, I'm like, it makes sense to me that pills would become an addiction. Yeah. I don't like the word addictive personality, but I do think that people can be predisposed to it with like other actions if they look back at their like past. Right. Things broke down at home and I moved into shelter because I thought that I would get clean that way, which really did not work because I used to other drugs through the shelter. However, from the beginning of 2018, until October of 2018. That was like the longest amount of time that I stayed out of the hospital without any overdoses, suicide attempts, anything. Mm, What was Um, different then, you know? Probably the drugs, but also I was staying in a shelter and I couldn't lose my bed by going to a hospital. And so that just like that kept me going. You've been in shelters for some time, it sounds like, right? Yeah. So I was in shelter from 20 January 2018. And then I was there for two weeks and then I left and I went back in February and I stayed in. I'll like explain my housing so it makes sense. 
I was in shelter from February 2018 till October 2018. And then I moved into transitional housing through the shelter. And I stayed there from October until sometime in like 2019, like in the the winter. And then I moved into sober living, this like sober living program for women and non-binary folks. Mm -hmm. And I stayed there until December 2019. And then I got kicked out of there due to two Basically, they had like a two strike in your out program. So I relapsed once and I was okay to stay. Like I just did my like community withdrawal plan where you go and stay somewhere else for a couple of days and you withdraw and then you go back. And then I had a second relapse during the winter that got me kicked out. And then that basically led to a suicide attempt because I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I ended up in a hospital for a month and a half doing ECT to cope, basically. Oh. How was that? And looking back at my journal entries from that time, it helped with the suicidal ideation like a bit for a very short period. But really, it just fucked up my memory, made things worse, I would say. Like long term didn't do much, but short term helped a bit. And I think that was like, okay, because at the time I was in a very dark place. Yeah. After that, I returned to my parents' home because I had I didn't want to go back to shelter because I was just so freshly sober. My concern was that I would relapse. So I went home and then the pandemic started because it was 2020. I stayed with my parents and then I had a friend basically who was my best friend at the time knew that I didn't want to live at home, but my parents didn't want me to go back to shelter. So they would be willing to like help me pay rent somewhere else if it meant that I didn't go back to shelter. So she asked me to move in knowing that my parents would pay rent, which I feel like was a good thing, but also like definitely affected our friendship and we're no longer friends. So Mm. Uh, I moved in. We had like a no substance use policy in the apartment because she had like a bit of a drinking issue, but I ended up relapsing. And when she gave me like the ultimatum of like, I could stay in the apartment if I stopped using or I could go somewhere else if I did want to use, I left uh, and I went back to shelter just so I could use. Mm -hmm. Uh, I stayed there for like four days and then I called her crying to come get me and Mm -hmm. she did. And I called my parents and they came to get me and I went to their place to detox because there were no detox beds in the city and then I moved out and then pretty much just back and forth between so yeah I basically stayed with my parents after that I moved out like May end of May of 2020 and then I stayed with my parents until February of 2021 and then I moved out again and I lived in an LGBT transitional housing program, uh, which was like supposed to be really good, but the program ended up being kind of iffy. It's a new program. It's it, like it's the second of its kind to exist in my city. There are just a lot of issues with it. So I ended up relapsing. It was a harm reduction house, which was probably the first bad idea. Um, and it was located, it's located in this area of my city that's just like really really bad for drugs Mm. like basically like the next corner like the corner down the street is like drug central Mm -hmm. it's probably not a good location no don't know why i decided that that was a good idea so i ended up relapsing like pretty quickly when i lived with my parents in 2020 things were like relatively good because i had such a fear of like having mental illness struggles in their house the way that they dealt with it wasn't really in like a good way. You know, like if I was suicidal, my mom's way of dealing was just to be like, oh, you'll just sleep in my bed tonight. They took this like really like 
holistic way, I guess was is what you could call it. Like if I really needed to go to the hospital, I had to tell them that my doctor had recommended that I go because that was the only way that they would ever take me. Most of the time, my doctor never told me that I needed to go because he don't he doesn't make that decision. He'll leave it up to me. But my parents would be like, well, did your doctor tell you that you need to go? And then so I'd be like, yes, actually, that is exactly what happened. And then I would go. In the summer of 2020, I had my first, what we think is my first psychotic episode. Basically, what had happened is I had started, my psychosis is mostly like seeing shadow people and like thinking people are following me, like being very like delusional and paranoid that like people are out to kid get me, kidnap me. Like there's like this whole company. It's a lot. I wasn't home. I was in a different province. Um, I was in Prince Edward Island with my family, which is like where my mom is from. And their mental health system is not as good as Ontario's. And so I had to go to the hospital there because I wasn't able to see my psychiatrist while I was out of the province. And when I told one of my supports that I could see what was going on, they were like, you need to go to the hospital right away. Like, that's not okay. And Mm -hmm. so I went and things were pretty bad, really not good. Before that happened, I talked my parents into letting me coming back go back to like our home my hometown in Ontario because I knew something was going on but I like just like I needed supports and I couldn't get those in PEI and so I came back and when I made it back to Toronto my roommate was out like I was still staying with that person like in the apartment my parents were just like paying for it while we were out of province and then I was supposed to move out when we came home this was like August of that year I came home and I basically like locked myself in my apartment for like four days mm-hmm. I couldn't use can like anything with a camera on it I couldn't use I had to like tape over everything I wasn't able to really like eat anything couldn't drink water like everything was poisoned I went Mm -hmm. off my meds, like everything. It was really bad. I ended up having like an appointment with my psychiatrist and it was supposed to be a video appointment and I couldn't talk on the phone because I didn't trust phone calls. So I did the video, but I like wouldn't turn my camera on. It was just, I was like terrified. And he was like, what is going on? And I was like, oh, nothing. Just like, can't use my camera. It's cool. He was like, if you can get to a hospital, you need to. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I really don't think I can do that right now because I like couldn't take the transit. I couldn't like go in taxis, like everything was just not safe. And so I ended up having a friend come up, like someone had come over to do something for my roommate and I knew her. And I was like, she saw the state that the room, like the apartment was in, which was like very like not good. And she was like, what is going on? And I was like, oh, nothing. Like we're good. And she was like, she was like, you need to go to the hospital, don't you? And I was like, Yeah. And so I like, it was like 25 degrees outside, which is pretty hot in Celsius. I was wearing like all black, like leggings with pants over top, like long sleeve shirt, hat. Cause like, can't, I was worried that cameras like were going to get my thoughts from my brain if they like saw my eyes or my head. Mm -hmm. So we had to walk to the emergency room from my apartment, which was about maybe like a 20 minute walk. But like in that get up was a lot. My friend was just trying to be like, you know, we can just like we can get on the subway. And I was like, no, we absolutely cannot get on the subway like that is not okay. I don't think she really understood. Like she didn't grasp what was happening at the time until like after that we were able to talk about it and I was able to like explain because in the moment I couldn't explain anything like it wasn't safe to tell anybody what was going on but I did get help and they put me on like a medication and they admitted me to a unit 
And the only way that I was able to get off that unit was for a parent to come and discharge me because they didn't want me just going home to like myself. And so one of my parents had to like fly back from the uh, the other province to come get me basically. And then after that, I went back out to the East coast. The psychosis like hadn't, it had subsided a bit, but it hadn't gone away. And so it ended up getting worse again. And I had to get admitted in the in the other province and that's like a lot worse of a place and the first unit I was on had like these like cords lining the floor and something that I deal with as a form of self-harm but then also a form of like suicide is like self-strangulation which really started like probably within the last three years really started as an issue but it was like a way to like make myself pass out when I was inpatient that like nobody could see the marks so nobody knew what was happening I ended up like telling a staff that I was concerned about this cord on the floor because I knew that if I like that, if I felt impulsive, that would be like the very first thing I did would be to go for that. I told them that and they were the doctor was just like, I don't want to deal with this. So you're just going to go to this acute unit. And I was like, I feel like that's not the way to act like to deal with it. But OK. And so I ended up on an acute unit basically to deal with that, which was a really bad unit. I ended up having one suicide attempt on that unit where I'd like tried to suffocate myself in the shower with whatever I had, which didn't make sense to me at the time, but it did work briefly. And so that was really unfortunate. I don't do well inpatient for long periods of time. The idea of inpatient makes a lot of like sense to me. And like, I do do well with like the treatment, like the therapy aspect of it. But having a lot of free time on my hands where I'm literally just thinking about suicide and like being sad does not do well with me. That's like the part that doesn't do well. That was 2020 summer. So my next attempt after that, which was my last attempt before this past winter, was in January of 2021. Um, I was inpatient. I had gone inpatient for psychosis again, which has been like a pretty regular issue since my first episode, which now that we've like looked back on like before the 2020 summer and after I've like talked to people in my life who like knew me before that, they can see that I was probably experiencing some kind of psychosis before then, but it just wasn't very prominent. The last time that it was really prominent was grade nine um, and grade 10. I experience a lot of paranoia about like cameras and stuff. And so it it teeters between having to look in every single camera that I pass so that if I ever were to go missing, because I believe that somebody is going to kidnap me, that there will be like a distinct timeline of where I was, you know, like on the street or whatever. Like I look into every camera, then if I don't look into one camera and they don't see me, then obviously I went to missing between these two cameras or not looking at any cameras because if I look in the camera, they're going to steal my thoughts. Those are like the two things that it teeters between. But I have a friend who I was friends, who I was friends with in grade nine that I reconnected with. And they told me I was like very paranoid in grade nine. I probably didn't tell anybody because that was part of it, but that they noticed it and that they were aware. And I was like, good to know, because that actually helps a lot with like figuring out when that started versus when it didn't. My second last suicide attempt happened January, 2021. I was inpatient for the psychosis. Things had started getting better. And one night I realized that I still had a hospital gown in my closet. I was feeling really impulsive. And so I ended up tying 
the hospital gown around my neck really tightly. I knew I was on like 15 minute checks. So I knew that if I did it like right after they checked that like I'd have 15 minutes to like pass out, I guess. And so I ended up doing that and I didn't fully pass out. I did briefly and I came to to them cutting it off my neck. And so that was my probably my most intense, like impulsive suicide attempt that I'd ever had because I hadn't really planned that out. It was just like, oh, I have this and I can do this because I don't want to be here. But I'd say that like a lot of my attempts have mostly been like just more forms of self-harm that could in one form or another, like lead to a death, I guess, if that makes sense. You know, like lately I've been really suicidal, but I'm in shelter again, so I can't go to the hospital. I can, I can be out of my bed for four days, but if I'm gone from it longer, I lose it. And so because it's winter, it's really hard to find a bed in a youth shelter. And because of my paranoia, it makes it really hard to trust people. So going to a shelter that I'm not familiar with doesn't seem like a really good idea right now. So I'm like, I'm at a shelter that I've stayed at before, like with staff, like not the hotel, but I'm supported by shelter staff that I know from the past. And so if I went to the hospital and I lost my bed, I'd have to go to possibly a shelter that I don't know anybody at. And that's like a really concerning idea for me right now. Seems to be like a very good like safeguard for dealing with like what's going on. And then my other coping strategy is that I go and stand across the street from emergency rooms. And if I'm standing there, I can't hurt myself probably. So those are the ways that I'm combating my suicidal thoughts right now. But that's my story in a really jumbled way, I guess. (laughs) These are going to be hard. These might be hard. They might not have answers. Why don't you want to be alive? I have always felt like I would never die like regularly, you know, just like a natural death. And Mm -hmm. I think I just don't want to suffer. Does that make sense? Like I have suffered for years. It is so hard to think that like the suffering will end naturally or with medication. It just seems so much easier to go like to die than suffer longer. You know, Mm -hmm. every time that it's like New Year's or I turn a new age, like it's just another reminder that like for a whole new, like another whole year I've suffered, you know, I don't want yeah. to suffer more. Yeah. You think you'll make it to 25? Right now, yes. But it's pretty early in the year. You know, I just turned 24 okay. in December. My birthday is Christmas Eve. So we don't know. Yeah. One thing that I think I notice is one thing that's impor- important to me is if I'm going to be alive, I want to have a future. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I go to the hospital and they're like, ask me about my future. And then I tell them that I'm so suicidal that I want to die. And then they they claim that because I have like plans for my future that I can't be suicidal, which I don't agree with. And I don't agree with it because if I have to be alive, I want to be successful. But that doesn't mean that I want to be alive or that I want to live through this, basically. Yeah. Like if that makes sense. When you say successful, what does that potentially mean? Uh, like I want to graduate school. Like I'm in school right now. Well, not right now, but I was in school and I'm going back. Yeah. I just, I want to have a career. You know, I do photography. I make art and stuff. That's really important Mm. to me. Yeah. How often do you ideate on a given day or week or I'm sure it varies some, but on average. Um, so I'm diagnosed with chronic suicidal ideation. I wouldn't say like every hour, but I'd say like Almost most of my day is spent thinking about it if I'm not like distracted by something else. Right. Was the last hour talking to me enough of a distraction or do you think about it while talking about it? 
I was thinking about like the last time I took an overdose as like a way to self-harm mm -hmm. was on my mind. But I guess like I just like when I talked about being my last my second last uh, attempt in the hospital, mm -hmm. I was thinking about how I lost my license when I was admitted. And the reason that I lost my license is because I had done some kind of psych eval and I admitted that when I drive, I think about driving in two walls mm -hmm. like because I'm suicidal. And so they took my license away and I've been trying to get my license back. And so when we were talking about this, you know, it just made it like apparent that like I don't think that want has gone away. And now when I think about it, like I think that if I got my license back, I'd probably just try that. That's kind of what I was thinking about. Mm. How many people know about your attempts other than like medical professionals and people who have to know? No, but all of them, probably not a lot of people. I have some really good friends who know. My parents know about some of them. And how many people do you have in your life that you can talk to about shitty moments or days or feelings, etc.? Probably like I have like my whole care team, which is about like five people. Yeah, I heard that earlier. Your team. I was like, huh, she's got things. Yeah, to, to explain, I have a psychiatrist and a social worker through CAMH, which is the main like mental health hospital in Toronto. Yeah. And then I have a caseworker through an organization that supports me in like everyday things, going to appointments, stuff like that. LGBT youth outreach worker that can help me with like housing and stuff, but then also supports me in other ways. I have a housing worker through another organization because I'm trying to find housing. And then I have one other, uh, they're called a youth in transition worker and they work through the shelter I originally was at. Oh, and I have an addictions doctor. So I have people in my corner. You know? and then yeah, I, yeah. I had a sponsor because I go to NA, but uh, I don't right now have a sponsor, but I still go to meetings. Um, mm -hmm. I have a lot of friends from the fellowship that support me. And then I have some other friends that are just have been in my corner for a few years now. Mm. What is one myth, if any, that you'd like to dispel? I would say that people who are suicidal don't care about other, like don't think about other people when they're acting on their thoughts or whatever, like I put a lot of thought into how my suicide will affect like people in the aftermath. Uh, I had a, a really close friend commit suicide this year or last like 2021. And I've lost a lot of other people to suicide. The aftermath is really hard. But when people say that people who commit suicide are selfish because they're not thinking about the other people, I don't agree with that because I think it's selfish to expect somebody who's in so much pain to live with mm -hmm. that pain me too yeah than they have right right that's really what i think flip it yeah you yeah know? i kind of i kind of agree with you on that one and it's not like the thing is it's not physical pain sometimes I, it is for people no, no sometimes it is but i think i think that you know i get physical pain from the stress that i feel from thinking about leaving my family in turmoil because I want to be dead. Mm -hmm. But then there, there's no way for me to put into like words the amount of emotional and mental pain that I feel. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no way for me to quantify that in a way that somebody's going to understand. Right. Which sucks. Yeah. Because what else do we have other than words, really? Like you're just limited by words, but 
you know, like uh, I've gone to the hospital for suicide before, like for being suicidal, because they always tell you to go before you do something. But the biggest thing that I've realized is that if you go before you do anything, they don't believe that you're actually suicidal. And if you go after you've done something, they're angry that you didn't go before. It's impossible. You know, like there's no winning with that. Nope. Yeah. Like how do you, how do you show the pain that you're in without physically doing something? Yeah. You can't put it into words. Art maybe. Basically. Yeah. It's impossible. Thank you, by the way, for sharing everything you did. I really appreciate it. So I don't know who listens to this. I don't know who hears it exactly. Once in a while I do, someone will reach out, but mostly I don't. But whoever's listening, they hear this, they hear you. What else before we skedaddle would you like them to know? Anything you want. It can get better because I know people who have been in similar situations as me, similar amount of pain, and they're doing a lot better. I know that I know that it's it it can happen. I'm not saying it happens for everyone. There are many ways to try to treat the pain. There's medication, there's skills groups, there's, you know, therapy, talk therapy, so many types of therapy. And I think like, you know, if it, if one doesn't work, don't give up. You know, I've I've tried so many medications and I've tried so many types of therapy and, you know, so, sometimes they work for short periods of time and then you have to switch. And also, like, if your supports, like, aren't talking to you the way that you need them to or aren't aren't treating you the way that you think you need to be treated, you know, they're not being straight up with you or whatever, like, find somebody else, you know, keep seeing them till you till you do find somebody else. But if you, if you have the reason, like, if you have the option to find another support, I would say go for it because mm. I waited a really long time with this one support because I'd been seeing them for years. And I thought that, you know, I didn't want to have to get to know somebody else, but it got to the point where I wasn't getting help from this person Mm -hmm. because they were just supporting like what my parents wanted for me. And that wasn't helpful for my mental health. Yep. And the other thing is you don't have to go to the hospital and you don't have to go inpatient for your, like mental illness to be severe and bad and for you to need help. Yeah. Not everybody goes inpatient or goes to the hospital when they're suicidal. It's still real. Truth. Blake speaks truth. Hashtag appreciate you meeting with me and we connecting. I'm glad we did. Thank you. Yeah. I'm really happy about this. Keep talking about it. I hope if it helps, if you want. I started an anonymous Instagram account that I won't name because it's because it's anonymous. <laughs> but uh, I post, I make digital art, and I post about my trauma and my mental health as a way to get it out without having to share who I am. Thanks for doing this, Sean. Of so- course, it's a. I don't want to say it's it's a, a pleasure. That sounds weird talking about suicide, but you know what I mean. No, I do know what you mean. It feels like. Uh, an important thing i'm glad to be able to do it so uh, um all right well listen i hope your winter day in ontario is okay and uh and your days moving ahead are okay talk soon blake have a good day Ciao.
As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Blake up in Ontario, Canada. Thank you, Blake. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. Of course, feel free to share this podcast on social media. Let people know about it. And if you listen on Apple, rating and reviewing the podcast really helps people find it. Thanks very much for that. And that's all for episode number 95. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.